So I get the microphone so I can kind of say what I want, which is nice. Uh, But I wanted to say just a little something. I'm going to preach, and it's mostly going to be about preaching. But we're also here for a 50-20. We're also here a little bit for Dan, a little bit. And I wanted to just highlight one of my experiences in which I felt the most pastored by Dan. See, I've known Dan for a lot of years. I knew him when I was in in, uh, high school, when I was a youth intern, working under Chris Gray for all those years, went backpacking. And uh, don't let him fool you, he takes lots of beans backpacking, okay? And he told me, this is one of the only times I have the freedom to do this without Deanna. So you know what that meant for me. So that's not, he didn't pastor me in that moment. That was the other. No. But it, you know, we're coming up in, in about two to three weeks. I can't remember exactly the date, but it's going to be Ruby's first birthday. And I think you guys remember all the things that we went through going up to that and how earnestly you guys prayed for us. And, you know, the most pastor I'd ever felt in my life came in the hospital when Dan showed up. Lots of other people showed up, too. And that's not to minimize those people showing up, but my pastor showed up. You know what's interesting? He didn't feel the need to fill the space with, you know what, everything's going to be okay. He didn't even come back into the room except to say hello. But you know what he did the whole time? He didn't leave. He stayed in the waiting room, and he sat, and he stayed, and he waited, and he listened. And when he got the news, he praised And I felt pastored in that moment, not by any action, but the heart and integrity of someone who will say, I'm going to drive all the way to Roseville. I'm going to take time out of my day. I'm going to sit in a waiting room. And I might not even see the people who I'm there for, but I'm there. That's a pastor, folks. That's what pastors do. And I think if you you think about in your own personal life where you've seen Dan work in your life, I guarantee he's been in your home. He might have buried a friend of yours. He probably dedicated your child. Over 20 years, you're bound to have an impression. My friend, I love you. Glad you are a pastor. And now that that's out of the way, let's preach. <laughs> he didn't want anything done. So you got to hit it when he can't, he can't come up here and tackle me. So what can he do? You got to do when you can. Psalm 16. It's been my meditation for the last month or two. I can't seem to get out of it. Keep coming back to Psalm 16. Keep coming back to Psalm 16. Want to go somewhere else. Keep coming back to Psalm 16. Preaching in high life, preaching Colossians, guess what finds its way in there? Psalm 16. I'm like, you know what? (laughs) So if there's any high school students in here, sorry. You're going to hear this again. Well, this is a psalm, and I think it's going to make sense to you if you look at it this way. It's going to start at a pretty low place, but it's going to ascend. The psalm is an ascension. And by the time we get to the end, there's going to be declarations made about God and ultimately about Jesus Christ that are, have, I think, great ramifications for us. And so I just want you to think, before we start getting into it and actually looking at the verses, think of it as starting low and ascending. Okay? That might be a helpful picture. But I want to give you a little bit of the tone. 1989, I was, uh, went on a family trip. We went to Munising, Michigan. Any Michigan people in here? Couple. Yep. Uh, you notice how you weren't loud? That's a Michigan thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're pretty much like a hand raise is like shouting. So 
we, we had a lot of family there. We took a trip. Uh, we drove up there, there in my parents' car. And when we got there, the plan was to go home with our grandparents. So my grandparents had a Bounder motorhome, and they took all four grandkids on a road trip that I think lasted three weeks. So all the parents got to come back home, but we all went with grandma and grandpa, which was like an awesome time. We all had chores. We had all these things to do. But they had this property uh, right in Buena Vista, Colorado, and we parked there for the majority of the time. And uh, there was a creek that we used to love to go to. It was Chalk Creek. We'd go out there. We'd throw our lines in. We'd fish all the time. Myself, my brother, my cousin Peter, and Jennifer the girl. I was 10 years old, so that's exactly what it was like. It was like, hey, Pete, Jake, you want to do something? Jenna, stay in the motorhome. (laughs) She's a really nice person now, but back then, not so much. Anyways, that's not even part of the story. So we're, we're, we're fishing in this Chalk Creek almost every day. And uh, we decide, hey, you know what, we've been, we've been catching fish, but I hear over nor- near the mouth of the river is even better. See, this property, you walk probably 100 yards and you're right at the Arkansas River. So you can imagine Chalk Creek coming this way and Arkansas River coming this way. Now I'm 10 years old and we decide, you know what would be great? Let's get in the creek because that's smart when you're 10. It's smart to go fishing inside a creek in shorts and, uh, actually I think I was in jeans uh, and, and shoes. So we get closer to the mouth of the Arkansas. We're just throwing these little plugs. We're doing flies. We're doing all this stuff. And wouldn't you know, as I get close to the mouth of the river, the current is a little stronger than I might think uh, it was. And I find myself rushed into the Arkansas River. And now I'm floating away. Okay. Now I want you to think. When a 10-year-old is floating away in the Arkansas River, what do you think came to my mind? Help! If you were asleep, I just woke you up. Help! I need help. I am floating away down the river, and I need help. Because I can't catch my bearings. The the slops, the rocks are slippery. I can't find it. So, big brother, Jake. Have you ever met Jake? Now you wouldn't, he's got a huge beard, besides the point. He's manlier than me. 6'6", wasn't back then. Um, but he was fishing behind me, and he saw me go away. And we're not very close, he and I. Not then and probably not now, uh, but we love each other with that brotherly affection. If you have a brother or sister that you, you grew up with and you're not as close as you once were, you know that there is still a bond that if you were in danger, they'd come for you, right? Well, that's exactly what happened. We're, I'm going down the river, and my brother jumps, and he starts swimming down. He grabs me lifts me up, and then for safe, me- safe measure, just in case I start to fall again, he hooks his lure to my pants. <laughs> because that's a good thing. And wouldn't you know it, I did slip later. And he was like reeling me in. <laughs> it was amazing. Funny story, he saved my life three times. That was the first time. And two times after that, he gave me the Heimlich on Papa Murphy's cheese pizza. Um, <clears throat> so don't buy stock in that Company, too much cheese. <laughs> Anyways, I love him. He saved my life three times. That's good. But when you're in the river and the current is taking you out and you don't know what's going to come next and you think, man, I'm going I'm, I'm to swim away, the only word that comes to your mind is help. That's the tone of this psalm. When we get into the psalm and we see the first word preserve, I want you to think, Help! I need help. I can't make it without you. I need help. Okay? 
So that's why the, 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 the psalm is going to start with this declaration of help. But by verse 7, that same person who is crying help is saying, the Lord is surely at my right hand and I will not be shaken. What happened in between? Somewhere in those seven verses, the psalmist David has gone from preserve me, I need help, to the Lord is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. It fascinates me every time I read it. And I hope to show you why I think in between those verses what he did to get to that place. So let's look at, the, let's look at it together. Verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I want you to look at that middle word right after O God. Preserve me, O God, for. The for is there. Read it as because. Preserve me, O God, because in you I take refuge. Now, I, I pray in my life, and a lot of times I pray on the basis of the Lord's goodness. The Lord is good to me, or Lord, could you please do this for me? But David is coming from a different point. He's saying, the basis of my plea, the reason that I want you to answer this prayer is because I've made, for, I've made you my refuge. I've made you my refuge. So refuge is a very important thing. But the four is a very important thing as well. Because David is saying, I have a basis for my, for my prayer. I'm not just throwing it out into the wind. I'm saying, preserve me. Now, we don't know what David is asking for preservation from yet. We will get there. We will see it in this psalm. But right now, it's a mystery. It's just preserve me. But because I have made you a refuge, or because you are my refuge. And what do I mean by refuge? Well, maybe... It's a little bit more about what I don't mean about refuge. We have a hard time, I think, declaring God to be a refuge when all around us is comfort. When I have everything I need at my own fingertips with the work of my own fingers, with, the, with the own, my own money, with all of my own creature comforts, how easy is it to cry out, Refuge. See, I think sometimes we get dulled in the senses. I think we cocoon ourselves from anything that could ever go wrong. If someone says goji berry juice will make you live longer because it's got antioxidants, we're like, stock up on the goji, right? If, if all of a sudden the next big thing is going to make you live five years longer, people want to do it. When the government says cut out saturated fat, we cut out saturated fat. When they tell you butter's better, you put more butter in. Because you know why? We have this built-in feature to preserve ourselves. We want to live. We don't want to die. And so we have this built-in sort of mechanism that says, let me surround myself, cocoon myself with everything that is okay for me. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do all those things. But here's the problem. You're going to die. You can drink all the goji berry juice you want. You can have every antioxidant you want. You can cryogenically freeze your head like some have done. You can do whatever it is that you want to do, but ultimately, do you know what's coming to your flesh? Corruption. You go to the dust. So when we say refuge, we don't mean refuge from the everyday activities. That's not the tone here. 
the preservation that David is seeking is a different preservation. He's saying, I need you to be a refuge. I need you to save me from something far greater than an enemy around me, far greater than my present circumstance. I need to be saved. I need a refuge from death itself because that's where he's heading. That's the tone. So we see right in verse 1, right after he prays, preserve me, he starts declaring who God is to him. And we're going to see four different declarations. The first is refuge. We just saw it. And then we're going to see four other declarations that, that David makes about God. One, he's a refuge. I, I call it safe place. Where's my safe place? And my question to you is where is your safe place? Can you say with David, Lord, preserve me because I've made you my safe place? Do we have the boldness to pray in that way? Or are we not so sure where we stand? Have we not made the Lord our safe place? So we're afraid to pray it because, well, we've actually never done it. We're looking to everything else still to fulfill except the Lord. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The second declaration that David is going to make it says, you are my Lord. Now, if you look at verse 2 carefully, you'll see the first Lord is all caps in your Bible. Right? That's Yahweh. All right? I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. That's lowercase. That's Adonai. That's master. So what he's saying is, I say to God of the universe, I say to Yahweh, you are my present Lord. You are my master. I'm going to follow you. And because you're my master, I know that I have no good in my life apart from you. So that's his second declaration. First is, you are my safe place. Second is, because you are Yahweh and because you are good and there's no good in me, all the good I have comes from you, you are my master. And he's going to reinforce that in Psalm 3 and 4. Because God is his master, he can say this in verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the saints. Because God is his master, he looks out upon the people and he says, those people who have also made God their refuge and their master, those are the saints and I delight in them. I delight in them because I see in them a treasuring of God. And so because of that, he is prone to delight in them. Now, not the same delight, not delighting in them over God, but because of God. Because he delights in God, because he is his master, he can say, I also delight in the people of God. Does that mark your life? If you've made God for you a master, and you see other brothers and sisters who have done the same thing, the cause reaction should be delight. But oh, how so often that is not the case. How often for us, we tear down our brothers and sisters more than we would tear down anyone else. He says, because God is my master, I look out at all these people, they treasure what I treasure. I delight in them. Now the reverse part of that coin is verse 4. 
The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So he's saying all the people who treasure God the right way, those are my people. That's my peeps. I love them. They delight in what I delight in. Their master is my master. I love them. But all those other people, all those fake phony gods, all those people out there that are cutting themselves to try to gain favor of a God, sacrificing to people, in that time sacrificial offerings would have been would have been common. So he's looking around and he's saying, all of these blood sacrifices done to try to get the favor of someone else, uh-uh. That cup, no, 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 I will not drink from that cup. My cup is Yahweh. My cup is, he's, I made him my Lord. All these other things, all these other things that people go for, that's not me. And he is so dedicated that he says, I won't even take their names on my lips. We have that in our day and age, don't we? We have lots of other small G gods vying for our attention, telling us this is where true satisfaction is. Come, take from this cup a little bit. Just take a little sip. It'll be all right. The faith of David was surely not. Not only will I not partake of that, I won't even take the names of those other God on my lips because I have a master. Okay? So that's what I think 2, 3, and 4, I think, are combined verses to, to, to say now he's declared, you are my safe place and you are my master. And I just want to pause here for a second to say this. In my prayer life, how many times have I said, have I started help a lot? I started to help a lot, but immediately go into declaration. And it's interesting that David is doing that. And I, I, I'm going to sort of, Reveal my cards a little bit that I think it's a good thing to do that. Verse 5. And this has been where I've been stuck for weeks. This is the verse I keep coming back to time again, time again, 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And the only way that I can think about that is to close my eyes and imagine the millions of the pleasures that this world has to offer. And we can name them, but you know them. And you know yourself good enough to know the pleasure that you are prone to fall into. But imagine this buffet table with every possible taste, every possible sensation, every possible temporal joy every happiness that you think it will be. And can you say of yourself that with my left hand I'm taking the cup, I'm taking Yahweh, and with my right hand he's also my portion. That's what he's saying. So he's declaring, this is my treasure. God, who is not only my safe place, he's not only my master, he's my ultimate treasure. When everything is laid before me, when I, have ev- when I have the choice, now what does it say? Chosen portion. He's choosing. Sometimes we like to be a little bit fatalistic with our faith and say, well, since God's going to do it anyways, he's just going to do it. That's not what this means. This means chosen portion. I'm reaching out my hand and I am taking from that table God. That is a kind of faith that I wish for us to have. And we're going to have an opportunity, look before you, down here, 
there's a cup and there's a portion. That's going to be our ultimate response. So I want you to be thinking about that now. We're going to have a chance to do that. But this is the part that I've really been meditating on. You hold my lot. You hold my lot. So he declares that God is his treasure. And part of him being a treasure is that he's sovereign in his life. You hold my lot. Where I am in life, where I'm going, what I'm doing, I have to trust that there's a sovereign God behind it. And not only do I trust in it, and it's, this is not a begrudging trust, this is a delightful trust. This is a treasure. I treasure in the sovereignty of God. And the reason I think that is because in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That word pleasant places, the same exact word in verse 11, pleasures forevermore. So if you read verse 6, the lions have fallen for me in pleasures forevermore. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. It changes, I believe, the tone and the meaning of that. We think automatically lions, pleasant places, inheritance, that's boundaries, that's land. That's, that's the image that you probably thought about when I, when I read that verse. But what I, have to, what I think is the lines are the lines drawn in by the sovereignty of God. And he moves you along in life. And he is a boundary for you. His sovereignty is a boundary for you. And in that boundary are pleasures forevermore. Do you you understand what that means? It means that God's ultimate good for you, if you're one who treasures him, if you're one who's made him the safe place, if you're one who's made him your master, his sovereignty for you is an inheritance of joy. He outlines your life in places and moves you towards joy. Which I find incredible. So our inheritance can never be read as something physical in verse 7. Or verse 6, sorry. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That inheritance can't be anything in this world. That can't be any land. Because if that's the case, some of us, we know this, some of us have land in Napa and some of us have land in, I don't know, Rio Vista. Which one would you rather have? You'd rather have Napa. Napa's going to make you a billionaire. Rio Vista... You might flood. So we understand inheritances, but so it can't be something physical because that means people get different things. What this is saying, that if you are a treasurer, if God is your ultimate treasure, what he's going to do is he's going to put the boundary lines of his sovereignty around you, and ultimately it's going to be him that carries you on to joy. If you are currently in your life making him a treasure, your heart should be doing a little dance because that means what's currently going on in your life can't be an accident. Because that means what's currently going on in your life isn't just happenstance. It means that you have a very personal and present God who is boundering, bounding, putting boundary lines around your life. Sorry. I love that. Verse 7. So the third declaration. It's my treasure. So we've had, him, we've, had, we've had three so far. Safe place, master, treasure. That's who God is for David. Now we see... Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. The question is, is God smart? Is God smart? 
Do we listen to his counsel? Does God know more about sex than I do? God know more about gender than I do? God know more about marriage than I do? God know more about wealth than I do? God know more about my own heart than I do? Because we're prone to see five minutes of a movie and think we're specialists in the whole thing. If I sent you to the theater right now and I said, go watch uh, that movie Cowboys versus Aliens. You remember that movie some years ago? Well, here's the plot. There's cowboys and there's aliens and they fight. But if I sent you in in like the first five minutes and all you saw was the cowboy part, you would come out of that movie and I would say, what was the movie about? And you would say, it's just cowboys. That whole movie's about cowboys and I'm a specialist in the cowboys because I've seen it. But if I sent somebody a little bit later and they were at the aliens part, you'd come out and you'd tell me that movie's just all about aliens. Don't we do the same thing with God's counsel? We read it in his word, we know what God says about things, but because we have an anecdotal experience or because culture is pushing us in a certain way, we specialize and say, my five minutes here, Lord, obviously you mean this. Obviously you didn't mean that about gender. Obviously you didn't mean that about my marriage. Obviously you don't mean that about my money. Obviously you don't mean that about whatever it is that you're treasuring over him. No, that's not the case. Is God smart? Does he know more than you? Has he, put it, has he revealed it to you in his word? And is he currently doing that in the community of other people? The one who sees God as his safe place, who is the master, who is a treasure, you hear the counsel of the Lord, and it doesn't make you sad, it makes you glad. Because if the counsel of the Lord says stop, you stop. Because we already said, he's putting boundaries around you. So, This is a good thing. It's not only up here in the clouds that God is good for you. It's here right now giving you counsel. Even in the nighttime as you sleep, he's instructing your heart. That's how present of a God we have. Okay, so what David has said so far is you're my safe place. You're my master. You're my treasure. And I listen to you. One thing about all of these declarations, notice how extremely personal they are. If you go back to every single phrase, it's not the, Lord, you are a refuge. In you, I take refuge. Not, you are the Lord. You are my Lord. Not, you are a cup and a portion. You're my cup and portion. Not just an inheritance. My, I have a beautiful inheritance. And not just a counselor, but my counselor. You see, we have a piggyback tendency in our faith. Where we surround ourselves by other people who might believe what we do, and in our weakness we say, I'm kind of like them, I kind of follow along with what they do, I think I believe in all this God stuff from a God is a Savior, but I've actually never said God is my Savior. There might be 5, 10, 20 of you in here who say, I have no problem with God being a safe place. I have no problem with God being a master. I have no problem with God being a treasure. And I have no problem with God being a counselor. But you got a big problem with him being that to you. Because you never made that step. You've never crossed the line. There's a line in the sand when you follow God. You can't have one foot. you got to have two. Two feet go over the line. Only someone who's got two feet over the line can say, I've made for you my ultimate treasure. I've made you my master. I've made you my safe place. 
Because of that, you're my inheritance. Now look at what happens here. This is amazing. In verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So here we get into verse 8. Because I have done these things, because I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So what changed between verse 1 and verse 7? And now he can say in verse 8, I won't be shaken. What's the only thing he's done? He's declared the truth about who God is for him. Okay, it's not the declarations of it that are going to lead to his confidence. It's the fact that he has made God these things in his life. So he's declaring, he's preaching to his heart, because I've done these things, because I've made for you, I've made you my safe place, because I've made you my master, because I've made you my greatest treasure, and because I listen to you, because you're my counselor. Now I will not, I don't have a faith that's shaken. I have a confidence that the plea that I prayed, the help, is going to be answered. Okay. Should not be shaken. Good. Do you see the ascent? Started down here. Declare, 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 declare. And now we're going to see what those declarations lend themselves to. Confidence. And because confidence, verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So the plea gave way to declaration. The declaration gave way to confidence. Confidence gives way to joy. You see how that works? You see how we're going this way? We got more to go. We got to go up a little bit higher. Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, to this point, I have not mentioned Christ in this song. And it would be absolutely tragic if I didn't do that, but I'm going to do that. You see, using this psalm was one of the very first sermons after Jesus died and was resurrected. The apostles loved hearkening back to Psalm 16, and they would say something like this. Hey, you know that whole, my Holy One won't see decay and my flesh won't see corruption? Yeah, you know, that's not David, right? You know he's not talking about himself. Because if he was talking about himself, um, why would his tomb be right over there? Because David's dead and he's gone. So what it means is that he was testifying to someone greater than himself. And that was Jesus. So the one who wasn't going to see corruption, that's Jesus. That's how the apostles used this psalm. And so I want to read for you in Acts Chapter 2, read that little bit of a sermon for you, and then I want to come back to the psalm, and I want to finish up. It starts in verse 25. It goes through 33. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I, not be, that I may not be shaken. This should sound familiar. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make a full gladness with your presence. Now, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about this patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted, listen to this, the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Really quickly, go back to Psalm 16. you got to see this. Verse 11 says that there's going to be pleasures forevermore, but it gives a place. It says that pleasures forevermore, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. What did Acts tell us? Where is Jesus? Right hand. What is the psalm saying here? The pleasures forevermore? That right hand? David clearly had a hope in a Messiah. He might not have known Jesus, the name. He might not have known exactly the dates and the time, but I promise you this. He did know that he was going to die. The prophet Nathan told him that. If you go back in the Old Testament and read the story, Nathan came to him and said, hey, you're going to die, but I'm going to put one on your throne. And on that throne is going to be an everlasting kingdom that will never wear out. And David is probably thinking, well, every person you've ever put on the throne has died, and every single heir died. So when Jesus, who came from David's uh, lineage, is, 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 is become the Savior, that's what that's referencing. So sometimes we're too quick to leave the psalm uh, and go to Jesus and we don't let David have his say. But the reason I want David to have his say about it is this. He had a trust that his body wouldn't see decay. He had a trust that he was going to ultimately have union with God because of a Messiah that was to come. That was his faith. He had that faith. I believe this psalm was wrote, written with that tone. But for us who are on the other side of the cross, who we can clearly see what he was talking about was not himself, but he was talking about Jesus Christ. We have for us our own choice to make. See, David looked out on the, on the landscape and said, safe place, God. Master, God. Treasure, God. Counselor, God. We have a different question. Romans chapter 8 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is also in you, surely we will also have life in our moral bodies. That basically we are going to be resurrected if we have the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead. So my question is, how do we know? What are the marks? In as much as you're making Jesus Christ your safe place. In as much as you're making Jesus Christ your master. In as much as you're making Jesus Christ your highest treasure. And as much as you're making Jesus Christ a present counselor for your life. You want to know how to have a declarative faith that ends and says my faith won't be shaken? Well, you got to hold on to something. And you know who you got to hold on to? You got to hold on to Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one that can take you from this life to the next life. Full of joy in both places. 
You see, we get joy there. Yes, that's true. But we get joy here, the psalm says, because we have held and we've chosen for us with the cup and portion, Jesus Christ. If that's you, you have a joy in your present circumstances. Yes, there might be pain. Yes, there might be some things that are going on. But ultimately, your inheritance is joy. And what that gives way to, man, in verse 11, I love this part. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Not there was, not there will be, but that there is. You know what it means when it's the is? That it means that it won't ever run out. Because as long as you're in his presence, there is fullness of joy. So if you get into his presence, guess what you got? Fullness of joy. That's your inheritance. So if you ever find your faith in a spot where you say, help me, what can you do? Well, ask yourself a question. Is he my master? If he's not, bow down. Is it your safe place? Do you have your heart somewhere else? Are you looking at a relationship? Are you looking at your present job? Are you looking at something else? Have you made him your safe place? If not, then do it. Is he your delight? Is he your treasure? Do you read the word and be like, that's my inheritance? Or does this bum you out? It should not bum you out. It should not. And this is a great one. If you read the word and it tells you to do something, Don't look at it and say, that can't mean it for this generation. That doesn't mean it for me. No, take his counsel to heart and say, because Jesus is my inheritance, because I'm going to be here, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of me now. I'm going to listen to my God. That's the response. My, My heart, the reason why I've come back to this psalm time and time again is I struggle with this kind of faith. I pray all the time, and I'm like, I got the help part right. <laughs> I got that right. I, my prayer life starts in help all the time. But it always says, help me for your good. Help me for, and I tr- declare all these promises about how he is on this lofty level. But very, uh, very rarely have I been the kind of person that says, wait, no, the declarations that I'm going to make are my God, my inheritance, my master, my counselor. It's my prayer that we do that. Now, we're going to do, as a response, uh, communion a little bit different today. David's going to get up, and they're already going to start doing worship. And there's no formal servers. We've already cut everything into the right slices, okay? So what I want you to do is I want you to come to the table in confidence, if that's you today. I think a lot of times when we have communion, we already get our hankies out. That's not a bad thing. The Bible says that we should take the table in the right manner. And I would never, never say that. But today, can we, if we are people who are choosing Jesus Christ as our cup and portion, can we like sprint? Like, I'm getting the pita first. And like, elbow somebody for the juice. You know, I, I don't really want you to run. But what I really want you to do is I want you to go up there and as you take that left hand and take the bread or whatever hand you use and as you take that cup, I want that to just resonate in your soul to say, my chosen cup is Jesus Christ. and My chosen portion is Jesus Christ. And to that end, may he get the glory. Let's pray. What a treasure you are, God. David knew it orient his whole life around making you his supreme good. And we in this room have the inheritance of Jesus Christ. This side of the cross, we know how good he is. Father, it's my prayer that us as a church and us as individuals can say confidently and boldly that Jesus Christ 
is our greatest and supreme good. Father, for those who are right on the verge and aren't sure if this is for them, Father, just tell them of your goodness. Father, we, I pray that to the end um, of today, that it can be a movement towards confidence for those of us who've made that choice. We love you, Lord. We're thankful for this time. Amen.